0: Welcome to NSI Live, the National Security Institute's podcast home for NSI's public events, limited series podcasts, and breaking news podcasts. To learn more about NSI and register for upcoming events, visit nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mason Now, on with the show.
1: I'm Jamil Jaffer. I'm the founder and executive director of the National Security Institute here at George Mason University's Anton Scalia Law School. We are thrilled today to have a, a real American hero with us, uh, General uh, David Petraeus. General Petraeus uh, served in a variety of roles through his government over the course of a four decade, nearly four decade career in the government in the mil- US military, completing his service as director of CIA. Today, David, uh, General Petraeus is, the part, is a partner and the chairman of the KKR uh, Global Institute. Prior to joining uh, KKR, General Petraeus served for 37 years in the military, He had six consecutive commands, five of which were in combat. He was the commander of the surge in Iraq, commander of U.S. Central Command, and the commander of coalition forces in Afghanistan. Following his retirement from the military and being confirmed by the U.S. Senate, General Petraeus served as the director of the CIA. He was instrumental in key victories in the global war on terror, led the agency's digital initiatives, um, and made significant, significant investments in the most important part of the CIA, its human capital. General Petraeus has, of course, uh, earned numerous awards, medals, decorations. Uh, He's been decorated by 13 foreign countries, including four Defense Distinguished Service Medals, the Bronze Star for Valor, two NATO Meritorious Service Medals, the Combat Action Badge, the Ranger Tab, Master Parachutist, and Air Assault Badges. So we're thrilled, General Petraeus, to have you here with us today. Thank you for joining us, um, and uh, we're excited about the conversation.
0: Great to be with you, Jamil, and thanks for what you did back in the day when we were serving government together.
1: Absolutely, sir. Absolutely. So, uh, General Petraeus, if, if, and, and by the way, for the audience, we're going to have a conversation with, between me and General Petraeus for about 30, 35, 40 minutes, uh, but there'll be time for your questions. So, you you have questions that come up along the way, uh, please put them in the Q&A, um, and we'll get to those uh, at about the at about the 35, 40 minute mark. So, General you served as the commander of coalition force in Afghanistan. Uh, we've had big news uh, about U.S. force in Afghanistan here in the last month or two uh, with President Biden uh, making the determination that uh, we will um, uh, move away from the uh, the conditions based approach and we will withdraw in full uh, by no later uh, than September 11th, 2021. Um, you've uh, you recently argued that uh, we're likely to look back uh, on this decision um, and potentially regret it. Um, and And rather than terminating endless wars, which is what President Obama called for, president Trump called for, President Biden has called for um, there 's a potential for us uh to end up back in this conflict in the future. Talk to us about sort of your thinking here and uh and 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 what what the administration might do, if anything uh to to ameliorate some of the concerns that you have
0: Well, first of all, no one wants to end endless more wars more than those who have actually been part of them and know the loss and uh, serious injury and wounds and destruction and so forth uh, that accompany wars. And I'd love to see this war ended uh, in the way that actually most of the candidates uh, said they would, which was, quote, responsibly. Um, And I fear that this is a decision that we will look back on and regret. Uh, It is already clear, in fact, that the security situation is eroding quite rapidly. There's a psychological component to this that is very, very important. Uh, Afghan security forces, like any soldiers uh, anywhere in the world, uh, will generally continue to fight as long as they think that there's someone coming to the rescue, a quick reaction force, uh, and that there will be supporting fires, close air support being the most important of those, of course. In Afghanistan, a very vast country with mountainous terrain and a limited road infrastructure. And that which does exist is cut in many areas now already by the Taliban. So you've got to have air support. Uh, You have to have tactical air mobility, the C-130 aircraft that we have provided to them, uh, and then the dozens of Black Hawk helicopters. And we've also provided fixed wing close air support aircraft uh, and Little Bird attack aircraft. Um, I fear that maintaining those aircraft is going to prove very, very difficult. It already is. It is being flown at an operational tempo that is vastly higher than even what we flew wow. uh, in the busiest, uh, most demanding months of the surge in Iraq or the surge in Afghanistan. And they don't have the extraordinary resources, uh, contractors, maintenance personnel trained uh, in, and with the whole logistical structure and system uh, to provide the parts, the tools, the sets, yeah. kits, outfits, as the terminology goes, and so forth. Uh, there will be battle losses. Now, there ha- there was a promise of several dozen additional Black Hawk helicopters, some additional fixed-wing aircraft, uh, and so forth, some additional money, uh, keeping some of the contractors there for a period of time. But right. I fear that once the Afghan forces realize that there's nobody coming to the rescue, there's going to be no air metal, medical evacuation, no air resupply and no close air support. Right. Um, that they will begin to either surrender, desert, or uh, not fight very hard. Right. Uh, we've seen some of that already. Uh, and indeed the Afghan air force is already stretched very, very thin. And the assets that we used to provide to enable our Afghan partners in the fight against the Taliban and also, of course, other groups, including two extremist elements, uh, Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State Horasan group, which is an element of the Islamic State operating right. in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Right. Um, th- those clearly have been going away. Uh, it's not clear whether we will help them if there are major cities uh, that are under siege while we are still there or... but. But again, you can see where this is headed and tragically appears to be headed toward a civil war similar to that which followed the collapse of the post-Soviet government of Najibullah, who ended up, of course, swinging in a noose from a telephone pole in Kabul as all of these different fighting forces, uh, militias uh, were fighting to gain control of Kabul. The the Taliban won out, of course, a very harsh, uh, very almost medieval kind of religious uh, yeah. Ultra ultra conservative, extremist in some respects, turning soccer fields into into uh, uh, really killing fields, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and obviously the the lot in life of women under those regimes is terrible. You saw millions of refugees flooding into uh, Pakistan in particular, and I think right. that we're going to see an awful lot of that again. The militias actually are already mobilizing. There are local forces that are being allowed to. Form Because the government has few alternatives. Right. Uh, any of the names that we know from decades ago are going to resurface. Uh, and you'll see the Uzbeks and the Tajiks and Hazara probably have to protect themselves, right. the Shia, uh, as well as different Pashto groups, uh, and including, obviously, again, the pr- principal insurgent elements, the Haqqani and their affiliate, uh, right. the, the Taliban and the Haqqani network. Um, So again, it just does not look to me to that there are going to be any happy endings here whatsoever. Right. Uh, And at some point in time, Al Qaeda and perhaps the Islamic State uh, will be able to reestablish the kind of sanctuary in Afghanistan in which Al Qaeda planned the 9-11 attacks and conducted the initial training of the attackers. Now, I don't want to overstate that because I don't see for the near term, unless Mm -hmm. there is some dramatic increase in their capability in the so-called cyber caliphate world. And so, in other words, using the Internet, social media and various skills there by which they might be able to amplify their effect much more uh, substantially than what they'll be able to do physically. Uh, from a remote base in eastern Afghanistan. But noting again, it was in that remote base in eastern Afghanistan where the 9-11 attacks were planned. I don't see them having that capability. I also believe that we very likely uh, would be able to detect something uh, much more effectively than we were prior to 9-11. You know all the changes that have been made to to our intelligence architecture, the organizational architecture, the capabilities, the assets we have now, and all the rest of that. But that said, we obviously are having to shrink our intelligence footprint if you don't have all those bases out there as lily pads or at least as locations that can provide quick reaction forces and medical. We don't put our people out there without those kinds of. Right. Um, And yet that is what is going to happen to the Afghan forces. But so we'll do an awful lot of this. There will be some certainly uh, capabilities uh, resident in the embassy in Kabul. Right. Um, But again, it's going to be considerably reduced. And if you recall what happened when we pulled out of Iraq and the, the, the blame for what happened after we did that does not fall on the Obama administration. They, they owned the decision. But the blame is the prime minister, who is your call. Right. I did all that we had worked so hard during the surge and the subsequent yeah. three and a half years to bring a fabric of society back together that had been torn apart yeah. by the very near uh, uh, full on civil war between Sunni and Shia Arabs. Um, And that that came back together, was going well, and it was his impulsive and highly sectarian actions right after our forces left. In fact, General Austin, now Secretary of Defense Austin, was the final person out, and within 24 hours, Prime Minister embarked on these very, very highly sectarian actions that literally just tore the society apart, by the way, just as an aside. I showed up a couple of days later as the director of the CIA to see the members of the CIA station there before Christmas, uh, only to find that. I mean, it was just as if I'd arrived pre-surge, uh, what I recall, you know, the days of that where everyone was at everyone else's throat and literally mm-hmm. spent the night that I first night I was there just shuttling back and forth, trying to keep people from, uh, shooting at each other. Literally there was wow. an M1 tank cannon, with its two pointed at the home where the Sunni Arabs were all gathered together trying to figure out what they were going to do in response to the prime minister preferring charges against the senior uh, Sunni official in the entire government, the vice president, and right. of his security details. So, but right. what also happened is that because we did not have a presence, we were slow in seeing what the Islamic State was doing. Yes. They got back, they reconstituted, got off their stomachs, went into Syria, gathered considerable additional power. And then when it was very clear that they were threatening, uh, you know, a humanitarian crisis, what they were doing to the cities, threatening the Kurdish Kurdish regional government capital, then threatening the very outskirts of Baghdad, it was very difficult to get back in there. And that's a place that has much more advantageous location than does uh, uh, Afghanistan, where we have bases in countries all around it. Big bases, in Kuwait, all up and down the Gulf, Jordan, uh, Turkey and so forth, and it's not landlocked, uh, right. you know, we can get right into it. We have huge challenges uh, with Afghanistan if we're going to o- operate, quote, offshore, even yeah. if we get a base in the one country that might allow that, which is still probably unlikely, uh, and that would be to put a base back into the Karshi-Khanabad yeah. airbase. K2, yeah. yep. In, in the invasion of Afghanistan in Uzbekistan, that's a long way still. Still, right. go over the Hindu Kush to get to where the majority of the fighting, give to Kabul in majority right. of the fighting. Beyond that, if you're operating from Qatar or the Emirate bases, yeah. uh, the UAE bases that we have, that's a really long distance. And of course, we can't take the most direct route. We have to go out and around right. because Iran, Iran is right here. Right. Um, maybe there's a base in some other country. It's a little bit closer, Oman, perhaps, something like that. But again, it's still a very long distance. And with our drones, um, this is just a problem we've never really had to this degree, and we don't have refuelable drones, at least not in large numbers. So uh, that's a real challenge uh, that is going to exist. And, of course, there are 18,000 battlefield interpreters that the president has said we will not leave them behind. But I don't know how you don't leave them behind unless we're going to mount a huge airlift uh, in the next couple of months because the clock is very much ticking. Right. Uh, and then put them in a third country, who knows, again, perhaps one of the Gulf states. Right. Uh, and then sort out their status there and do the, the checks that we've been trying to do uh, in Afghanistan, but which have literally stopped because the interview process stopped due to a serious COVID uh, spread within the embassy mm-hmm. workforce. So, again, there, there are a lot of real challenges here. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, right after that decision was announced, um, I fear we're going to regret this. I'm also sensing right now that we really haven't had the kind of detailed planning to execute what it is that we're doing because we don't know of the possibility of a base in a neighboring country. Right. Um, again, we're, it's down to just one anyway, and, and that would yeah. not be all that ideal, and it might have be limited as to whether or not armed aircraft could operate from it. Um, So we're we're, we're really doing some of this as we're going along. Certainly, that's the case with those who qualify for the special immigrant visa. And again, that's some 18,000 or so by the last State Department count. Individuals who served on the ground with our men and women in uniform for two years, that's what they have to do to qualify for it. Shared risk and hardship. You know, our son was a second lieutenant, rifle platoon leader, when I was the commander. And those battlefield interpreters were not just, you know, taking words from one language into another. They were their cultural advisors. They were their eyes and ears. They were uh, really, really valuable. And again, had the equivalent of multiple army tours. So these are full year tours. Right. Uh, And that is a long time. uh, And we owe that we have a real moral obligation to them. By the way, their families are also in jeopardy because of what uh, generally they're, they're. the husbands or fathers uh,
1: did serving right. alongside our forces, right? And and everyone knows. I mean, th- there is no question that we cannot leave those people out out to dry. It would be it would be a complete moral failure on our part if we were to do that. It would, and and the president has basically
0: acknowledged that by saying yeah. we will not leave them behind. That is a policy decision when the president yeah. says something like that. It almost harkens yeah. back to President George H. W. Bush, who said, "We will this will not stand." when told yeah. about the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. And, you know, I was actually the aide to the chief of staff of the army at the time. And I remember there were lots of debates initially until they went over to the White House. Right. And it wasn't, he just cut through. This will not stand.
1: Right?
0: You know, and everybody said, okay, got it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: That's pretty straightforward. Now we know what our mission is. Uh, right. This is not going to stand. How do we get them out? How do we, re, you know, re-liberate this country? Yeah. Um, he said, they will not be left behind. Okay, now let's see what the details of the plan exactly. are. How are we going to operationalize right. uh, his policy decision? But again, yeah. I do fear for for the Afghans. I saw, I was, you know, did the dinner with uh, President Ashraf Ghani and Chairman Abdullah Abdullah and the other members, all of whom were old, you know, have been in Afghan government almost continuously uh, since yes. 2002. And, um, this is a very, very tough situation for them. Now, right. you know, they made it easy at all times, not necessarily, there's been, you know, absolutely internecing internecine political maneuvering and wrangling yes. and fighting and corruption and you know, all kinds of challenges. And again, it's very easy to get frustrated with that. But at the end of the day, again, I think that this is something that we didn't have to do. We could have very easily just kept 3,500 troops there. I've often described that what you need in these kinds of situations, and we should have had in Iraq as well, is a sustained, sustainable commitment. Sustainability is measured in the expenditure of blood and treasure. And if you can do that with 3,500 troops, which, by the way, also meant that you had 8,000 additional coalition forces because they're coming out now as well. Yes. Uh, And 18000 or so contractors who, again, among whose tasks are keeping the Afghan fixed wing, rotary wing uh, aircraft uh, operating uh, and also the weapon systems, the vehicles, more sensitive stuff, night vision goggles, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, again, by pulling that out, the lack of 3500 troops. Um, we may have consigned a country to, uh, to a civil war. Yeah. I, I do think this has some uh, repercussions elsewhere. I, you know, I'm, I know that they are saying that this is, we don't worry, this doesn't mean that we wouldn't do something, say, in the Indo-Pacific, if that is necessary, or in this other place. Don't mistake this for a lack of resolve or what have you. Um, I don't know how you can't look at this and at least call that into question, right? Right. Because I mean, and that the is- superpower has to keep a lot of plates spinning to use the metaphorical image of the guy in the circus that puts a plate up, gets it spinning, goes over, does it with another, gives this one, you know, and just keeps him sooner or later, he's got. 10 or 15 plates spinning, and certainly one of those in our case is vastly bigger than all of the others put together. That's the one that represents the US-China relationship and really the US and all of our allies and partners relationship with China. And we can talk more on that in a moment. But superpowers also have to keep a lot of other plates spinning. And again, we're seeing that in Somalia, where we had a very small presence uh, doing that from outside, offshore, what have it, is, is not easy. Uh, yeah. The same with, you know, when President Trump tried to pull the troops out of Syria, put them back in. But, you know, these were yeah. just leave less than 2,000 troops there. And again, what's wrong with that? We were, we've we lost vastly more men and women in uniform in training accidents and collisions at sea than we have on the battlefield. Um So, again, I would think that this is sustainable. Uh, Again, understanding absolutely the desire to end endless wars, but also believing that you need to try to end them responsibly and as well as you can, uh, not just because, again, we're not ending the endless war. We're ending our involvement in it. The endless war is
1: going to get worse. Yeah. Well, so, General, I mean, I I think this is exactly right. But one of the challenges, obviously, domestically we have, right, is that, is that I think there's a perception, certainly among our leaders, we've now seen three presidents in a row, Republicans and Democrats alike, Biden, Trump, Obama, all of whom said, we've got to end these endless wars. They all tried to pull out of Afghanistan completely. They all tried to pull out of Iraq, Syria completely. Um, And and now President Biden is committed to this effort um, and it it appears it's going to happen. But there are these claims, you know, we talk about these ideas, we'll run these over over the horizon operations, right? I think you've laid out exactly the reasons why That's the challenge and unlikely to be successful. Um, Now that we are where we are, right? What impact that you alluded to it, but I want to be really direct about it because we saw, we all saw what happened when the president, President Obama set a red line in Syria. We didn't enforce it ultimately. And there are a million different reasons we can all argue about. It was Congress's fault. They didn't authorize it. The president didn't strike, whatever, right? We put aside the the politics of it, right? It clearly sent a message. And we've seen the outcome of that. We've seen the Russians all over region. We've seen the taking of Crimea. We've seen the building of a base in the South Tennessee. A lot of that is an outgrowth of a, of, a, of a perception by our adversaries that we're not committed to our red lines, that we won't, we won't take casualties. And this, it, this reinforced that narrative. Is that right? And if, that's, if it is right, is there, any, is there anything to do to ameliorate that problem, that perception amongst our adversaries that you could just outweigh the Americans they don't really have it the stomach for the fight?
0: Well, I think it's a good bit more nuanced than that, candidly. Yeah. Um, and again, I, I did say it, surely there there will be at the very least some perceptions that derive from this, but certainly we are taking a whole host of steps in a lot of other ways. By the way, I should just point out to the audience, I am completely not just nonpartisan, I am nonpolitical. I don't right. register. I will give advice to either members of either party and have and continue to do so, including the current administration and members of the party in opposition. Right. Uh, and and again, it doesn't matter who's in office. Uh, I, there was a number of actions taken by the previous administration that uh, struck me as very, very ill-advised, not the least Absolutely. of which was negotiating away with the Taliban, whatever leverage we had, and and the commitment to withdraw our forces without the Taliban giving up virtually anything. In fact, anything. we... That's right. Pressured the Afghan government to give back three or four thousand of their or perhaps more of their detainees, hundreds of whom have already been recaptured, showing that they didn't honor the uh, commitment to lay down their arms uh, and not return to the fight. Uh, We've gotten virtually nothing from the Taliban. I mean, well, maybe they didn't attack us for a period of time, a fairly uh, short
1: period of time, to be clear.
0: um, So, again what did we get out of these negotiations from which we excluded the actual elected Afghan government? government. And I mean, there's a question there. If we really are bringing back our emphasis on democracy and human rights and women's rights and all the rest of that, what does this say about that? Again, uh, the Taliban are obviously not paragons of virtue when it comes to any one of those particular issues or the values and freedoms that we cherish and are once again seeking to promote around the world. But again, it is more nuanced than that. There's much more to it. And, and frankly, I agree with about 95% of what the new administration is doing in its effort uh, when it comes to the foreign policy, uh, establishing a sequencing process that it begins at home, uh, that you have to first combat the pandemic. Needless to say, again, your your the foundation of strength for your foreign, foreign policy comes from your Uh, domestic, uh, economic, political, social situation. Uh, So you've got to combat the pandemic. We've done that very, very impressively. A lot of work to be done. Certainly, we'd like to get further vaccination. But again, compared to the rest of the world, the US is leading the way. Uh, Second, then make sure the economy is is being brought back. I mean, we've done that so effectively that the worry is actually inflation uh, and a worker shortage. There's a variety of reasons for that, needless to say. But and hopefully this, uh, the inflation concerns will prove to be transitory rather than longer running. But that's a serious debate as a former economics professor has been fascinating to watch. Yeah. Then, of course, pursue the investment in our infrastructure, which in many cases is, is uh, desperately in need of uh, refurbishment, uh, repair, reconstruction, new construction, uh, promote the the elements of the future, really, the The sectors that are going to drive the economy in the future, uh, a whole variety of tech, AI, machine learning, uh, also green, uh, the uh, renewable energy production, all of these different initiatives, including investing in our people uh, and so forth. So that is all absolutely, in my mind, you you can argue about some of the projects, you can argue about some of the numbers, the magnitude, whatever. But again, I think that is all very seriously needed. And in the meantime, you are engaging or in some cases re-engaging after a period that in many respects, especially the final two years, was an America first uh, approach, not just rhetorically, but also in actions. Um, And so you're re-engaging with our most important Asia allies allies and partners, including especially the Quad. Uh, That is at levels it's never been before, helped in part because of what China has done to India. Uh, then you go have the G7 summit, very successful. Uh, you have the USEU summit, equally successful, a NATO summit, uh, some bilateral summits uh, and meetings, uh, the meeting with uh, President Putin. And now they're ready to begin the most important uh, summit and relationship of all. Noting that obviously the uh, US Secretary of State and National Security Advisor met with their counterparts in Alaska. Right. In you know, a pretty contentious, at least publicly. Uh, I, I, my understanding is when the doors closed, it got down to business. But right. now you, you can start to anticipate, perhaps at the, on the margins of the G20 meeting in Italy uh, in, in the coming months, uh, a meeting between President Xi and President Biden. Um, and again, all of this to establish a coherent, comprehensive whole of governments with an S on the end. So all of our elements of power, plus uh, those of all of our partners and allies around the world, which we uniquely have uh, in the policy for China uh, to ensure that, yep, cooperate where we can, climate, pandemic, some other issues, compete where that's necessary Uh, in a lot of sectors that will be, try to get it as as level playing field as is possible. Uh, And obviously avoid true confrontation. And that actually, and I'm talking about uh, physical confrontation, kinetic confrontation that could arise from miscalculation, misperception, stakes, what have you, uh, by ensuring that we really shore up deterrence for That particular relationship and keeping in mind that deterrence is a function of uh, an adversary's perception of our capabilities and our will to employ those capabilities. And that's a long winded way of getting back to how does each individual decision around the world affect the adversary's perceptions of your capabilities and
1: most particularly your willingness to employ them. So, so let's talk about that piece, right? How, in your mind, uh, does China view today our capabilities and will to push back on their activities, particularly in the region, right? Let's talk about the Quad, right? Um, the South China Sea, right? Whether we're talking about Taiwan, whether we're talking about their behavior with respect to democracy in Hong Kong, uh, their their oppression domestically of of the Uyghur Muslims, does China perceive that we have? the capability and the will to address any or some of those issues if they were to go further, right? If they were to cross the Taiwan Strait. Um, and 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 what impact, if any, do a lot of these things that are happening in other places, you point out, uh, we, had a, we had a great meeting with the Europeans when it came to uh, both NATO, the G7 and the like, and, and commitments came out of that, right? We'll see how that kind of gets implemented. Do you see the Chinese perception changing of our capabilities or will, or uh, where, where do you see that stands today?
0: Well, I think it's still, frankly, premature to even make that kind of assessment, given that this administration is still in its first six months. Right. Um, And and by the way, up front, I should note, I mean, my most fervent desire is that the U.S.-China relationship is is one that is as absolutely mutually beneficial as is possible, uh, because the alternative uh, obviously could be very grim. Uh, in a nuclear age, uh, yeah. Graham Allison did the wonderful study of these. I think it was sixteen case, cases in the last few centuries where you have an established power and a rising power, and he uses this dates back to the Peloponnesian Wars, where of course Thucydides wrote about Sparta, the established power. Read the United States, right. uh, Athens, the rising power. Read China, and he wrote in the history of the Peloponnesian Wars, inevitably, they went to war. I mean, inevitably, you can't go to war in a nuclear age. Right. You've got to avoid it. Um, and you've got to be very, very careful in how it is that you do that. And, and, and the big idea here, of course, is to be firm, but not needlessly provocative. Right. Um, but keep in mind that China's assessment of not just the US, but generally of the West, uh, is that it is in terminal decline. Um, And so from their perspective, and perhaps strengthened a bit by how impressively they did in responding to the pandemic, Uh, they certainly didn't lose 600,000 people. Uh, They didn't have the, again, millions and millions of cases. Now, you can question the system and processes and, 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 you know, I hold our freedoms and values and so forth uh, very, very dear. Right. Um, But... Again, from their perspective, that's what they have seen of the West. And they're keenly aware um, that contrary to what was written back in uh, 1989 by Francis Fukuyama in that famous essay, The End of History, which right. that became a book, uh, yeah. propelled the national interest uh, membership so much. I was in an academic phase at that time and one of the only 10,000 subscribers, I think. Um But as you recall, his conclusion was, or his prediction was that this competition of systems, which is how he described history, the dialectic and the competition between contending systems, uh, in that competition, uh, the U.S.-led Western system of democratically elected governance and free market economics was prevailing And had prevailed, really, over over the Soviet Communist Party and its command economy. Um, And so history was over, uh, he wrote. And the zenith of history, again, in the development of systems, was what it was that we have. Um, Well, you know, China now, certainly with uh, considerable reason, can beg to differ. Right, uh, they have done in 42 years since Deng Xiaoping welcomed the world to China what no country in history has ever done in terms of economic growth, pulling hundreds of millions of people uh, out of power, out of poverty, uh, building infrastructure that is the envy of much of the rest of the world, et cetera, et cetera. Of course. Help by having a market of 1.3 billion people. Uh, But there are other countries that have over a billion people that have not achieved that same kind uh, of growth. And meantime, they look at the Western uh, democracies and they see a degree of populism. I think it's fair to assess that we have had a bit of populism in our country uh, uh, in recent years, and and not just in the previous administration. It started a while before
1: that. That's right.
0: Um, And look at UK with Brexit. Look at France yeah. where Marine Le Pen won over 30% of the vote. Again, you just walk right. your way around the democracies. Right. And from their perspective, at the least, um, you can say, hey, look, our system's better. Again, they're in terminal decline. Uh, we are going to prevail in whatever competition takes place. Now, I don't think that is going to be the case. Uh, yeah. Someone who believes as Warren Buffett has often said that never pays to bet against America. I certainly hope that's true. And I Touch wood while I say that, and that many of the programs being pursued by the administration, in many cases with bipartisan support, um, certainly when it came to reviving the economy, uh, combating the pandemic, even I think, I hope we'll see with the infrastructure bill and so forth, um, that you're going to see a a U.S. with a lot of pent up demand from uh, the period of the pandemic. Right. Just accelerating growth. Yeah. It's already started and the growth is going to be very, very considerable. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, as a partner in one of the world's biggest investment firms, one that owes 110 companies, I think we have a reasonable assessment of this and then in minority investments in another hundred or so. So yeah. that's my hope of what is going to happen and that right. the Chinese assessment will be one that you you know, um, they're on a bit of a rebound. Uh, They have got allies and partners. Um, Yeah, it's noisy and it looks sort of ugly sometimes. And, um, you know, there's a cacophony associated with these democracies. But by golly, look at what they are doing. So very, very premature at this point, I think, uh, to say that China might perceive what I have just described uh, because it is still, I mean, it's very much show me time. Uh, yeah, you really have to have. My, my dad was a crusty Dutch sea captain who came to America at the beginning of World War II and sailed throughout yeah. the war in the U.S. Merchant Marine. Um, and you know, he would look at me and say, "Results, boy!" And I think you know, we're at that point, results, U.S. And that's what yeah. we you know, we need to pull together and produce yeah. those. Yeah, well, and you know, I- in so doing.
1: Yeah, and, and look, I and I think that's the key is this, is the point about leading the world, and I do want to get to audience questions here in just a minute, but I do want to ask you about a point that you made earlier. Um, and you have this unique perspective, right? Because you've had a long history in national security, um, and leading our troops in combat, uh, but you've also had a long career as teaching economics, and 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 now you know leading uh, as part of part of KKR uh, this effort to acquire and 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 develop uh, uh you know both startups. I mean, you're you're an advisor to. 20 startups, an investor in 20 startups. Um, and, and large, that's, you know, that's personal. That's separate. They're that's all approved right. by KKR and all many enough. of the
0: partners invest right. in startups.
1: Fair enough. And 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 obviously KKR's large uh, 110 acquisitions that it that it owns and the other hundred companies have minority investments in. You know, so you have a unique perspective from an economic perspective and a national security perspective on this problem. And I guess what I what I want what I what I'm interested to hear from you is is in this scenario, we're coming out of we're coming out of the COVID pandemic you've made, a, you've made a, a strong case for the idea that we're going to accelerate, right? But a lot of that turns on some of the investments that we're making in infrastructures. A lot of it turns on us protecting this new sort of innovation economy uh, that we're building here in this country. And we've seen you know, a lot of the intellectual property walk out the back door to China, right? A lot of what you described in Chinese, Chinese growth and, and success hasn't been solely based on, on the theft of that intellectual property, but some of it has. Um, how do we do we have an opportunity here to effectively win this economic competition or even compete effectively given the 1.3 billion uh, consumers um, and, and, and sort, of, sort of worker base in China? And if, if we do, what, what's the method to getting there? Is it purely America simply out innovating, out thinking, out performing, out, out you know, just sort of moving faster? Or uh, is there some other methodology we've got to adopt looking at this, this large scale generational threat?
0: Well, look, it's always all of the above. Yeah. And we have seen challenges in the past, never anything remotely uh, on this scale and magnitude and frankly, the right. achievement of China. Um, we had, you know, I'm, when I was literally in graduate school, uh, the United States was asking itself, why don't we have industrial policy? Japan's got industrial policy. Why don't right. we have a ministry? With, what was it? Ind- Industry and MIDI, yes, Uh, and um, you know we had classical economists at Princeton that said, "Well, let's see how this works out." Again, we've had these cycles before. Our auto industry isn't as competitive as it as it was, and Japan is outdoing us in that regard. But again, give that time, and I think that's some of what is going on. Um, Mm. Test question for you: Uh, Who, what company in the world? Has invented the smallest microchip because keep in mind smaller is better. Yeah, uh, in terms of microchips, because you know the smaller it is, and you put all these different, uh, if you will, circuits and everything else on a tiny little chip.
1: Um, Well, I think it's IBM, right? IBM's got three nanometer,
0: right? You are. It's actually two. Two. Uh, They just announced a two nanometer. Now they don't have it in production yet. Right. This is massive because the leading technology was uh, TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, uh, which is, you know, a vast amount of the world's most sophisticated chips in the three to five range. And then you have, uh, I think it's Samsung in uh, in Korea uh, that is making slightly larger. And then you have Intel and the others that are still cranking out tons of, you know, 10 and whatever. You need all sizes, but the Big prize is the company that can make the smallest, invent the smallest, and then actually you got to produce it. And as you well know, a factory to produce this, because of all the yeah. robotics and the sophistication uh, and all the rest of that, is you're, you're talking a ten to twenty billion dollar investment. Uh, happily, by the way, both uh, TSMC and Samsung are building factories in, in the United the US. States. Yeah. Um, so again, that's another good sign. Um, but we have so many issues with which we have to deal. Uh, we've got to invest in a lot of these industries. We have to keep yeah. the R&D uh, going instead of being flat or gradually declining in real terms. We've got to uh, invest in education. We have to make childhood education more more available and more, uh, and more uh, possible um, at a higher quality. Again, there's so many different issues. Immigration is one on which we need to agree uh, right frankly, if you come back to the u.s china relationship there's a really important component that no one has talked about um and that is a trade component i mean if you're really serious about again having a truly coherent and comprehensive uh whole of government's policy we would rejoin the trans-pacific partnership in its new new form without us right uh and that is an, an imperative but of course the uh Fast-track authority just literally ran out. There's no prospect of it being uh, restored by Congress for the administration. And the administration doesn't appear that keen because of presumably domestic political uh, reasons. Right. So maybe if, right. if they hang on in the midterm, they will be willing to take that on in the second half of the, uh, the Biden first-term presidency. But that's a huge issue. Again, it's all of these different issues. There's never a single factor. There may be one that's more important than others. But all of these are uh, equations with many, many different factors and different coefficients uh, in right. front of those. It's just the right. same as, you know, in the surge in Iraq. It wasn't just uh, going after the, the uh, high value targets. It wasn't just reconciliation with the rank and file. It wasn't just clear, hold and build, living with the people. It was all of that right. uh, and many other big ideas, many of which, by the way, are, of course, 180 degrees different from what we were doing uh, during the year leading up to the surge. That's yeah. We've got to get the big ideas right. I think that those big ideas are, are recognized, the need for them are recognized in a whole host of different areas. And the question is, can our executive legislative branches get together, get Make the support of society uh, again, it's got to be a whole
1: of society effort as well. Yeah, yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Um, I do want to take some questions from the audience. So um, so I see Amin Gilani is uh, one of our visiting fellows. He mentioned that he served under you in Iraq when he was active in the Air Force. Um, and he, he's interested in knowing, um, how does the U.S. achieve its, uh, or sustain, at least, military edge uh, over the next decade?
0: Well, we have to make some hard decisions there as well. Yeah. Um, and, oh, by the way, Congress has to support The military services, the Pentagon, in doing what they know they need to do, which is to give up some of the legacy systems uh, that we have, buy fewer of some of them in the future, and able to invest in other systems, to put it in very simplistic terms, uh, to give up again some of the huge, uh, heavily manned, uh, incredibly costly, exquisite. They're exquisite, of, I was going to say they're, but they're exquisite. Of big, plactor, a big right. platforms, right. You know, whether it's aircraft carrier and all their task force, F-35, the M1 tank. Again, what every overhead imagery, these big yeah. platforms. And they're very, very helpful. Don't get me wrong. I loved having two aircraft carrier battle groups in the central command area for the bulk of the time that I was the commander. It was spectacular. Right. That's U.S. soil. Um, but what do we really need? We need a lot more uh, unmanned or remotely piloted uh, air, ground, sea, subsea, space uh, systems that are increasingly uh, semi-autonomous or even at some point autonomous, Mm. um, powered by machine learning, artificial intelligence, the most advanced algorithms. And by the way, that's another area where we have to make some really tough choices, and that is... Is there going to be a person in the loop for the decision to actually pull the trigger? And I would submit that if there is, you're going to be your machine will be dead because the other side will have a faster algorithm, and they're not going to wait on a person. The person in the loop will be in the algorithm and building the the. Here are the uh, criteria that must be met, the conditions that must obtain in order to pull the trigger. And by and large, machines can do that faster and frankly increasingly more accurately uh whether whatever different technologies they're relying upon um, and you can see the future coming where we're going to have all kinds of again autonomous systems on the bottom of uh the ocean uh, in in space uh, available for ground again sea and, and air operations that's what we have to move to so you know so how do we maintain our edge that's that's how you do it and by the way this is hugely challenging because it's literally it's actually changing the very conception that services have of themselves yes you know the army is 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 of a a soldier you know on the ground an infantryman or in a tank or with artillery or uh, perhaps long-range systems but you you got people in all of these, and by the way, people still going to be crucial, but increasingly right. it's going to be people with different skill sets. Um, you know, remember just in the way that uh, unmanned aerial vehicles are remotely piloted, as the Air Force prefers and more accurately to to describe them. Um, we not embraced immediately no. by those services that had um, manned aircraft, right? Uh, and there was a degree of not resistance, but you know, and Secretary Gates. Um, really pushed those systems. And and that was game changing. That's what enables us actually to do what we have done. Uh, You know, we enabled the Iraqi security forces, we enabled the Syrian democratic forces to destroy, actually, certainly to defeat, but even more so the Islamic state as an army. Now, of course, Mm -hmm. bad idea to ever fight even a force supported by the US as an army. uh, Because if you mass, then you're you're going to be destroyed. Right. We didn't do the fighting on the front lines the way we had to during the surge in Iraq. We didn't do mm-hmm. the reconciliation, the reconstruction, the restoration of basic services. All of these tasks that we actually had to get involved in in some cases lead because right. if we didn't, the country was going to descend into civil war here because we could put an armada of drones up over those forces we can fuse intelligence in ways that we never could before and we can advise and assist remotely basically uh, with the commanders and command posts. Um, That is a game-changing capability Mm -hmm. and it did change what we were able to do. If we'd had that in the beginning, you know, I remember all the way back when I was a two-star general commanding the Great 101st Airborne Division during the fight to Baghdad uh, and there were three army divisions on the left flank, if you will, the west flank. Uh, The Marines were on the right flank, on the east. Um, And we were all sort of fighting over the one predator that would occasionally orbit again, not even one unblinking eye, not a line, just one predator with a lousy feed, and it wasn't armed, as I recall. I mean, think about how far we have come, uh, both first in predators and in reapers, and this ability to keep many, many, many dozens of unblinking eyes uh, over battlefields, and to shoot from them when needed, uh, yeah. and also the precision air attack capability. So right. that's, that's how this is advanced in those particular regular warfare. Uh, again, imagine what that can do uh, in the preparation, really, to deter uh, right. the adversaries and what is commonly referred to as a, uh, a great power competition, the return yeah. of power
1: competition. Yeah, no, it's 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 a great point. Um, you know, one of our audience members uh, asked um, about about our sort of our conversations revolve in a lot of ways around kinetic threats. Um, although the China thing is, is definitely a, a different story. Um, how concerned are you about about growing non kinetic threats? Uh, the Huge. audience member asks. Well, yeah. I mean,
0: it's it's a daily uh, yeah. experience. Uh, yeah. You see what's going on in cyberspace, right? And I'm not just even talking about. Um, the cyber activities are being carried out by nation states, by criminals, by extremist groups and, and a host of other non-state actors. Um, we're talking about what's going on in social media yeah. you're talking about what's going on again in outer space. So, again, there are so many uh, areas in which there is actual call it combat or whatever you want to call it. But there is, you know, cyber warfare is actually ongoing. The Pentagon is bombarded. Networks in the Pentagon are bombarded on a daily basis, as you well know, um, by, again, this whole array uh, of individuals who wish us ill. Um, And we have to fend them off. And it has gotten more and more and more complex to the point that, of course, you see the colonial pipeline shut down and it disrupts the entire delivery of of half of the refined products to the Eastern uh, Seaboard is publicly known. We are one of the major investors in Colonial Pipeline. as right. you know. Uh, we saw what happened, of course, with the Solar Winds attack uh, hack. Right, it was a supply chain. We believe we saw what happened right. with the Microsoft Exchange. Uh, these are very sophisticated, and in many of the uh, the ways that individuals are again doing the phishing attacks, the different probes, all the different. Uh, The ransomware attacks that have proliferated dramatically, and we hear about uh, only a subset of those, a fraction of them, Um, these are vastly more diabolically uh, clever. I'm also on the board of one of the companies we own is the largest pure play cybersecurity services firm. Uh, And again, to create the kind of, once again, comprehensive, uh, integrated, managed, and designed cybersecurity architecture uh, is very, very challenging. And right. very few companies have the capability to do that. They go out and buy this or buy that or buy you know, a couple of different products, and a bunch, and they put it together. But again, it has to be comprehensive. It has to be integrated and integratable. Yeah. It has to be managed. Um, and it has to include all of these different elements of a so-called reference architecture uh, if it is to stand a chance and then of course you have to have uh, a workforce that practices cyber hygiene and uh, systems administrators that are trustworthy right. all of the again this is a massive challenge yeah. uh, for our corporations in the United States today so you ask about where are the non-kinetic that's yeah. certainly a huge uh, a huge area for that
1: and yeah. again yeah. I
0: think it's going to get more and more challenging I'm a very heartened uh, by the three individuals that uh, President Biden has already in office, or the yes. one, the Assistant Director Jane Cook gotcha. still awaiting yep. confirmation, but a brilliant. She was one of our team, uh, West Point Road Scholar. She's a NSA. She came to Baghdad for a week and went home six months later, you know, after helping us build right. the large cloud outside the country at the time, I think, to enable the uh, integration of yeah. intelligence of yeah. Yeah. disparate data. From right. And so right.
1: forth for a whole. And the delivery body. to the warfighter instantaneously yes. of that of that intelligence.
0: Yeah. So, yeah.
1: Again, um, there are others.
0: Yeah. Again, you have the first cyber czar, Chris Inglis, right. again, brilliant. And you have the restoration yeah. of the individual in the in the uh, uh, White House yeah. as yeah. well.
1: All very, very, and Newberry, very, very highly yeah. qualified. Yeah. Um, I do want to change uh, change topics a little bit. I will come back to some of the stuff you just said about, but I've I got a great question from Martha Miller. Uh, she mentions that you participated in. Uh, Uh, in the German Chancellor debate at the Munich Security Conference. Um, And you asked the candidates about Germany's combat readiness. Um, What did you think about the candidates' comments on Germany taking more responsibility uh, for European security and global challenges?
0: Well, we've had discussions of this many, many times over the years. So I I was in Cold War Europe uh, in NATO. In fact, I had NATO assignments as a one-star, three-star, and four-star general. Usually they were dual-hatted. Uh, with a US assignment. And but I was also the you know speechwriter for the NATO Supreme Allied Commander uh, in an earlier life and, and all the rest of that. And then my first assignments as a lieutenant and captain in, uh, in Italy, Germany, Belgium, and so forth.
1: Yeah.
0: And I've tracked over the years, um, and then also from academia, all of these different, you know, European security defense initiatives and all the rest of it. and, and the truth is that there has been vastly more discussion of this than there has been resourcing of it. And generally, I often have responded as, you know, I got a bit more senior and it wouldn't seem to be too impertinent, but, you know, and, and not as bluntly as this perhaps, but, you know, if, if I'm not interested in more headquarters or rearranging the capabilities that you have already. Sometimes that can be useful. Uh, right. Particularly if it's done with a rational uh, approach that is trying to really complement the capabilities of, of each other. Sure. But um, I'm interested in additional capabilities. You know, are you actually going to spend the two percent on of GDP right. on the funds that all of the NATO leaders agreed to at the Wales summit some years ago? Right, um, and it's publicly known that Germany really isn't even at one point five percent. Exactly, yeah, I think they may be approaching it now. And again, they've made progress. They're doing certain steps. And I should note that the German forces that I was privileged to have as part of the International Security Assistance Force in Afghanistan, who conducted not long after I arrived the first true post World War II combat operations, uh, did textbook counterinsurgency: clear, hold, build. Uh, mm-hmm. gradually transitioned, very, very impressive. But the question that I asked for that debate, um, which we recorded so that they could use, um, had to do with, you know, since then there was a period where none of the submarines could get, there were no aircraft transport. There were, you know, again, very, very, uh, low level of military readiness, uh, at a time apparently where they were looking at the potential for some contingency operations or con- involvement in contingency operations. Right. And so the question is, are you going to get serious about this? Um, and again, I'm all for Europe sharing more of the load, because we should recognize right now the U.S. doesn't just spend more than all of its 29 NATO allies put together; it spends more than twice as much as all of right? them. And that, again, certainly Europeans should do more. And and it's it has been heartening, actually, to see more European countries uh, break through that 2% of GDP on defense threshold uh, and meet that standard, but still some really major countries uh, have not achieved that. Yeah. And, and again, who the next chancellor is going to have to address that very issue, uh, both in NATO terms and also in terms of the operational readiness of German forces, Right, which again are very, very capable. I mean, this is a really well-educated group, uh, Sophisticated, uh, competent force, yeah. but if the systems they're provided are not sufficiently maintained, then obviously that's a, a pretty serious
1: uh, yeah. drawback. So uh, Dimitri Alperovich is on our board of advisors and uh, great man, co-founder. Yeah, co-founder of CrowdStrike um, and the chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator. He's interested in your views on the space force. <laughs> Good move. Look, I, thought move.
0: That, I thought that was a good move. Uh, I applauded that uh, move by the previous uh, administration and also the way that they did it,
1: mm.
0: where you keep it as part of the Air Force. Because the concern whenever you get new structure is that now all of a sudden you don't just get the forces you actually want, you know, the space right. guardians and all the capabilities that they have. You end up having to have a new military academy and, a, you know, right. so a new basic course, advanced course, staff college, right. work college and that is a lot of administrative overhead is hugely important yep. the education of the forces the professional development is critical right uh, but again that's an awful lot of overhead so by keeping it under the air force essentially the way you have the department of navy that has mm-hmm. the us navy and the us marine, marine corps marine. And, and they yeah. use some of the same facilities not all of them they've actually built out quite a bit uh, on the marine side but but that's very, very good, I think. Uh, and so the way they've gone about, first of all, I thought it, there was an imperative to do it. It was a, it was a good decision. Right. Uh, and then the way they have gone about it, I think by and large, now it, we're still in the early stages, you're just seeing the transition of, uh, individuals from the other services right. to, uh, the space force and so forth. Um, and, and, time will tell how well we actually do that but the the trend uh and the decision and all the rest of that i think are very good and by the way I, I i should also note i'm the coach honorary co-chairman of silverado dimitri's initiative yes. uh, which i really applaud in fact the other day he had uh the woman in the white house who he does over-
1: Neubart, yes.
0: and and very very impressive conversation
1: yeah absolutely uh so sir i think we probably have time for a quick one more question um so, uh, so, let's see. Try to find something. Um, what's the most strategic question you get asked on a recurring basis Mark Sullivan's asked? What's the toughest question you get asked about strategy?
0: Well, I think it comes back to the uh, evolving U.S.-China relationship. Right. Um, yeah. We've talked quite a bit about that. You know, I've given the very sort of the biggest of the big ideas about that. Yeah. But you've then got to actually, you've got to start to operationalize those big ideas. And so how well is the Indo-Pacific theater set for the operations that it could be called upon to conduct? And by the way, if it's ready for those, the perception of a would-be adversary will be that perhaps the capabilities are impressive and there's a will to... Uh, employ those capabilities just because they have taken all these different steps. Right. Um, And having been privileged to be a commander of a combatant commander of an area of responsibility, U.S. Central Command, uh, which ran from Egypt uh, to Pakistan and Kazakhstan, down to Yemen and the pirate infested waters off Somalia. We were very proud to have about 90 percent of the world's problems at that time. Uh, right. We didn't have a resurgent great power rivalries at, just yet. Um, but, you know, we were a theater at war. And I know what kinds of capabilities and, again, organizational architecture you have to have to do that. I mean, we had a full-up air operations center. We had yeah. base, Joint Special Operations Command headquarters is living in our uh, area of responsibility. AR. Yeah. We had two headquarters actually fighting Iraq in Afghanistan uh, and then a handful of others for a variety of other responsibilities, but it's, how do you configure all of this? So, yes. and I think that still is the strategy, the realm, because it is, you know, ends, ways and means Yeah, and that's into the operationalization uh, again, of a particular strategy.
1: Yeah. And I
0: find that that's again, that's drilling down a couple more Absolutely. levels. I've actually had a very good conversation with the new Indo-PACOM commander very early on when he was here in Washington. We spent an evening together. Um, and that's a fascinating question Yeah, where, because it it's, gets beyond that, what I've laid out here um, and what I put in a monograph when I was a fellow at Harvard about that coherent, yes. comprehensive approach, whole okay. approach. Right. With the now let's Center, start yes. getting into those. And, and again, those are fascinating questions. Um, and for what it, I, I have enormous admiration for the members of this administration, uh, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, Sullivan yeah. Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. Obviously, Lloyd Austin was you know under me in two different uh, combat tours. Right. Uh, our secretary of defense. Uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Milley, and others. Again, there's a really, really talented team. And some Definitely. of these are just sheer inspired. You know, Bill Burns a CI director, uh, the AID uh, director, and some others. These are really, really inspired choices. Yeah. Now it's bringing it all together, though. Because, again, coherent, comprehensive yep. governments. And by and large, so far, I think uh, that is proving to be the case. Uh, there is an exception, as I mentioned, um, when it comes, I think, to the decision in Afghanistan, which, again, I I fear we will regret to come back to where we started. Uh, yeah. But by and large, I think a very impressive uh, beginning, uh, noting that, you know, it, it's not always all bad to start in a crisis, yeah. um, as with the beginning of the surge in Iraq, uh, if the outcome can, at the end of the day, uh, be that violence is down by 85% and so forth. So right. um, anyway, well, look, this has really been a privilege. Uh, you've guided us, well, yeah. like the, the lawyer and uh, counselor that you have been in the Recovering past. Recovering lawyer. That's it. So uh, thanks for the invitation. Uh, thanks to all the audience that has uh, stayed with us throughout this and congratulations Absolutely.
1: on a great initiative. Thanks. Well, General, listen, thanks for spending this time. With- I promise I get you out at 6, at 6.03. So we'll keep it short. So thanks to, thanks to you for being here. Thanks to the audience for being here. Uh, folks, check out our website, nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Check out our awesome podcasts, including uh, Iron, Iron Butterfly, uh, which you which you re, which you repost on LinkedIn, Fault Lines, NSI Live. We're on Twitter, at Mason Natsec, And of course, General Petraeus, thank you again for being here. Awesome conversation. Right, thank you brother. for your service. And thanks to for being here. Have a great evening, everybody.
0: Thank you for joining us for this presentation from the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter at MasonNatSec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for
1: editing and Grant Haver for production assistance.